Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, if the rest of you would please open your Bibles to the book of Nahum. <clears throat> Nahum. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there will be a Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, a paperback Bible, and you can find our passage on page 456, <clears throat> book of Nahum. Uh, before we get into the Word, I want to mention just a couple of reminders. We do have um, an Exploring New Life class coming up. This is the class that... Um, is designed to assist people who are interested in becoming members or at least just wanting to know more about the church and what we believe and why we do what we do. If you're interested in this, we have a class starting on September 15th. That's two weeks from today. <clears throat> um, Six-week class it happens between 9 and like 10 or so a.m. on uh, Sunday mornings. So we'd love to have you take part in that. There is a sign-up sheet. You can put your names down. We've got eight people signed up already. Very excited about that. If you want to join in, please sign up. Also, uh, last week, you might remember that we announced the beginning of our life groups. And this is a very important part of the life of our church, small group meetings, uh, where we gather every week or every other week to fellowship, pray for one another, discuss the sermon, teach one another. Those groups will also be starting here pretty soon in the next couple of weeks, but um, we would love for you to sign up for a group. And so we've got, I don't know, six or seven groups. We have sign-up sheets out in the foyer for you. If you um, <clears throat> have been part of a group and you're planning to just participate in the same group, we would still like you to sign up. Uh, that'll just help us to know how big each group is. So uh, maybe you're assuming we know that you're in that group, but we would really love for you to, to sign up. Anyway, also, we do have a group specifically for parents with teens, and there's another group that is um, specifically for parents with young children, and so you'll see that note is, uh, noted on the sign-up sheets, so make sure you take a look at that. If that appeals to you, those would be the groups for you, life groups, so please sign up. Okay, <clears throat> uh, we are continuing through our sermon series called Route 66. Uh, we are going through the entire Bible, one sermon per Bible book. We've been in this section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets here lately. And uh, one thing that you might have been noticing as we've been going through these Minor Prophets is this persistent message of judgment uh, over and over again. It seems like we're hearing this, this theme that, that God is angry and that God is full of wrath. And you might have been thinking to yourself as we've been going through these books, it sure does seem like God is angry a lot. Uh, you might be asking yourself, does God have an anger problem, an anger management problem? Um, this is a, a problem for many people as they learn about the Christian God, this idea of God being a God of wrath or a God of, of anger. It could be an issue for you. you you don't tend to like angry people. Not many people do. So should you like an angry God? Should you worship a God like that? Um, if this is not a problem for you, I assure you that it is a problem for people that you know and work with. Many people are turned off by this. This is one of the things that bothers them the most about the Christian faith is there's this God presented who is a God 
of wrath. And in fact, this has created a question among many people today, which is not so much does God exist or not, but for many people, the problem is if the God of the Bible does exist, they don't want to worship him because they consider him to be immoral. And part of the reason is because of this idea of God's wrath and God's anger. Some writers have said that God is bloodthirsty, that he's vindictive, that he's like a malevolent bully. Do we really want to worship a God like this? This is the kind of question that a lot of people are asking. And again, if you talk with people about the Christian faith, this very likely might come up. Well, we are at this book here now in the Minor Prophets called Nahum, um, another very minor prophet. <laughs> We're going through the Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them, and like Obadiah, here is another very minor prophet. By that I mean it's very short. It's just three chapters. But by that I also mean it's very obscure. It's a very little-known book, and uh, that's what we're going to look at here today. Bless you. So a little background uh, information on Nahum. We believe uh, Nahum to be the author of this book, written between 663 and 612 B.C., so 600 years or so before the time of Jesus. Uh, Nahum prophesied or preached during the reign of King Josiah. <clears throat> and uh, what makes Nahum distinctive, Nahum distinctive, is that he is preaching about a city called Nineveh that was a major city and for a while a capital city in the nation of Assyria. Now, uh, if you've been with us here over the last couple of weeks, that city Nineveh should ring a bell a little bit. We've heard about Nineveh lately. That was two weeks ago when we heard about Jonah. Because you remember Jonah was the one who was sent to Nineveh um, to preach uh, to them to repent. Well, Nahum is about Nineveh. Nahum hasn't been sent to Nineveh, but what he is writing is about Nineveh. And we'll see here that <clears throat> one of the major events is the prophecy of the downfall of Nineveh, the conquering of this great and mighty city. And this is significant because Nineveh, Assyria, has been an enemy of the people of God for many years. So um, and this is uh, like the arch nemesis rival of God's people. And Nahum is talking about this coming fall of this city. The theme of Nahum no surprise, the judgment of God. Here we go again. <laughs> the judgment of God on evil. But what we find here in Nahum, at least in this first chapter, which is what we're going to look at today, is I think a lot of help for us as we seek to understand uh, how God can be angry and so full of wrath and how we can make sense of this. And so that's what we're going to read here um, today. What we have here in this first chapter is kind of a lesson on the attributes of God. And what helps us understand how God can be a God of wrath is understanding a lot more about who he is and what he is like as we try to fit these pieces together. And so this first chapter uh, tells us about this and it also challenges us. And this is what I want to present to you today to ask this kind of question as we go through this. And that is this, do I worship God as he actually is or do I just worship God the way I want him to be? Because that's an issue for a lot of people. You know, they hear things about God and they don't like that and they feel like they have the freedom to say, well, I'm just not going to accept that. I'm going to say that God's this way because I like it that way. 
Or people sometimes say, well, the God I worship wouldn't be like that. Well, the question is whether the God you worship is the God who actually is. And that's what the book of Nahum is telling us here in the first chapter, what God is like. And so a very important chapter here in Nahum. So let's stand for the reading of God's word if you're able to. Uh, I'm just going to read the first 15 verses, which is the entirety of chapter 1. Uh, this is the English Standard Version of the book of Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He drives up, dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will cut, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God, we pray, Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <coughs> All right, so a, a lot here. We're not going to be able to cover everything in this chapter, but there's quite a bit we learn here about God. In fact, what I'm going to tell you here is six things, not merely three, so kind of a two-for-one deal here this morning. Six things we learn about God that will help us understand how he can be a God of wrath and anger. And the first one is this, that God is jealous. God is a jealous God. Very clear there in verse 2, right? The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Now here is something else that very often we respond to negatively. We don't like angry people and often we don't like jealous people either. We consider them to be maybe somewhat petty and self-centered. I saw a 
YouTube video of Oprah Winfrey talking about a time in her late 20s where she went into a church and she was listening to a sermon and the preacher was preaching and she said she was getting really caught up in what the preacher was saying, talking about the greatness and majesty of God. And, and then she said that he got to this point where he said that, that God is jealous. And Oprah said, that just stopped me in my tracks. And she said, there's just something about that that doesn't feel right to me. And it might not feel right to you either. This idea of God being jealous. But let's not deny that the, God, the Bible says it. It's very clear, right? I mean, it couldn't be clearer in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous God. And in fact, in several other places in the Old Testament, the same thing is said. The important thing for our purpose is here is to understand what is meant by this. I mean, how, how do we understand God to be jealous? Jealousy does not have to be a vice. It often is a vice, but sometimes it can be a virtue, actually. If we consider jealousy within the context of the covenant, God is a covenantal God. We have been seeing that over and over again in our study of Ruth 66, that is, God is one who has bound himself to his people. He has committed himself by way of covenant promise to his people. He's entered into a relationship with them, a relationship that resembles the relationship between a husband and a wife. And we heard that several sermons ago, this metaphor, this image over and over again, that the relationship between God and his people is like the relationship between a husband and a wife. And any good marriage will have a husband who is devoted to his wife and a wife who is devoted to her husband. And that's the picture we get of God. God is devoted to his people. He is fiercely loyal to his people. And he wants from his people a similar kind of loyal response. And when his people start to wander away from him, going after other gods... It is something that is hurtful to God because what God wants for his people is what is absolutely best for us. He doesn't want to see us destroy ourselves by going after other gods. And so it's in that context that this word jealousy comes forward. God is not jealous of his people. He's jealous for his people. He's jealous for us. He wants what's best for us. He wants devotion from us because he's devoted to us. I mean, just think of any marital situation. Let's say there's a wife who finds out that her husband is flirting around with other women or perhaps uh, committing adultery and cheating on her. If you can picture a situation where a wife responds to that completely apathetically with no amount of anger or concern, with no amount of jealousy whatsoever, you would say that is not a healthy relationship. It's a sign of health for a spouse to be jealous if that spouse is going after other lovers. And that's the picture of jealousy that we get here in the scriptures. That's how God is jealous. A guy named Paul, Paul Copan says this, we should be amazed you know, not bothered by this idea of God being jealous. We should be amazed that the creator of the universe would be so deeply connect himself to human beings that he would open himself to sorrow and anguish in the face of human betrayal and rejection. God loves his people. God loves us. And he wants us to love him 
back. And so God is jealous. That's the first thing. Second thing, we see that God is vengeful. Yes, he is. He's vengeful. You go on verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. I mean, this just kind of goes on throughout this chapter. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the heat of his anger. Verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he'll make a complete end of his adversaries. He's going to pursue them into darkness. No matter how far they run, no matter how distant they think they can get away from God, no, God is going to pursue them and bring them down because he's a God of vengeance. There's anger in God. There is. There is wrath in God against his enemies. It's true. It's what the Bible says says. Now, one of the reasons that we resist this and maybe don't like this, it leaves a sour taste in our mouths, is because probably all of us have had bad experiences with human anger. I mean, we have, some of us, been the recipients of anger gone wrong, uncontrolled anger, over-the-top anger, abusive anger from spouses, from parents, perhaps, from a boss or a supervisor, and we know what that's like to be the recipient of anger, and it's, it's, it's offensive, it's hurtful, it's, it's hard to deal with, and so very often, because of our negative experiences with human anger, sometimes we project that onto our ideas of God being anger, but we have to understand that God's anger is not like human anger. <laughs> it's very different. God's anger is always principled. It's always righteous. It's always appropriate. There is an appropriate place for anger. There are some things that ought to make us anger, and there are some things that should make God angry, and it does. J.I. Packer says it like this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is, it is instead a right and necessary reaction to moral evil. I mean, that's a good definition of the anger of God, a right and necessary reaction to moral evil. God is only anger, angry where anger is called for. So the question is, in the case of Nineveh, is anger called for? And the answer is yes. And we'll see a little more about that as we go further. But yes, this is, this is a country, Assyria, Nineveh, who brutalized the people of God in unspeakable ways. God's angry about that. God is angry when his people are persecuted and victimized. Makes him angry. Uh, it's interesting that uh, Nahum actually means comfort, which sounds kind of strange, isn't it? As we've just read this whole chapter about wrath and anger, what in the, how could we perceive that Nahum is bringing comfort in this situation? Well, here's how. I mean, to the Ninevites, yeah, this is not a very comforting chapter. But to the people of Judah, to God's people who were victimized and brutalized by the Ninevites, by the Assyrians... 
This is big comfort from God. What God is doing here is saying, Judah, you have been victimized by these people, but I am going to get vengeance on them. I, I am going to bring them down. That brings comfort to those who have been victimized, to those who have been the victims of this brutality. So the people of God are rejoicing when they're hearing this. And we should all rejoice when we see evil and wickedness confronted and challenged and destroyed. How many people were disappointed when the Nazis were defeated in World War II? I mean, do you think the Jewish people in particular had any kind of sadness or sorrow about that? I mean, how many people are sad to, when you hear that some ISIS fighters have been captured or destroyed or killed? Anybody disappointed by that? Anybody made sad by that? When Osama bin Laden was killed? I mean, did that bring a tear to your face as an American? To see our arch enemy brought down and killed? No, no it didn't. You were glad, you were comforted. Because that's what the destruction of evil should do for God's people in particular. We find comfort in God's vengeance. Thank God he is committed to destroying evil. And in fact, it did happen in the year 612, Nineveh was brought down, and God did exactly what Nahum was predicting that he would do in this first chapter. Third thing, God is patient. God is patient. Here's what we, again, probably dislike so much about anger. We don't like it when it's quick. We don't like it when it's unpredictable. But God's anger is not like this. And so if you look at verse 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now what Nahum is doing here is quoting a passage from Exodus 34 from many years before. Remember last week I was saying that the prophets sometimes look to the future, but very often they're looking to the past. And here's an example of this. Because verse 3 is quoting Exodus 34. That's when... Um, right after the golden calf incident and God had given the Ten Commandments to Moses but the Ten Commandment tablets were destroyed and so God called on Moses to rewrite the Ten Commandments and there in chapter 34 God passes before Moses and God kind of gives this self-definition of who he is and he says this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's what Nahum is quoting here. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, two things I want you to notice here. First, notice God punishes the guilty. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, is that an immoral thing for the guilty to be punished? Punishing the innocent? Yes. Then we have grounds to accuse God of some immorality. But what this is telling us is that God only punishes those who are guilty. So there's no immorality in that. There's no injustice in that. There's no charge that can be brought against God for that. He punishes the guilty. But what this passage also tells us, secondly, is that even when God does punish the guilty, 
He always does it slowly. He's patient. He's not eager to punish. It says in Ezekiel, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, sometimes these people make God out to be this bloodthirsty killer, like he's just rubbing his hands, like he just can't wait to destroy people. That's not the God that's presented to us in the Bible. He's patient. He's slow to anger. He waits a very, very long time for people to repent and turn to him in faith. He's patient. I mean, just think of this. Average lifespan of people in the world is about 71 years old. Um, multiply 70 times 365 and you get 25,915 days. So I know there's exceptions to that, but for most people in the world, they live on this earth for 25,915 days before they pass out of this life and meet their maker. That's a patient God. That's a lot of days for people to say, you know what, maybe I ought to get right with God. Maybe I ought to repent. Maybe I should believe in Jesus and receive him as my savior so that I can have assurance of eternal life. 25,000 days. That is not a God eager to punish, but one who's patient and slow. Where are we? Number four here, I think. Fourth thing. God is good. God is good. Uh, you see that in verse 7. The Lord is good. And, and here's what we see often in the scriptures are these statements that to many people seem contradictory. But the Bible doesn't seem to have any problem saying that God is jealous and avenging and wrathful. And in verse 7 also that he is good. These things must all be true, according to the scripture. The Bible writers don't see any contradiction here. God is good. And in fact, what I would say is what makes God angry and wrathful is his goodness. If God weren't angry and wrathful at sin and evil, he would not be good. I mean, isn't it true if you see anybody, let's say you're at school and you're walking down the hall and you look down and you see some smaller student getting beaten up by three or four people, getting bullied and harassed, and you just walk right on by and don't do anything? You don't have any kind of response to that? Is that good? What if you walk down the hall and you, you tackle these people and you <laughs> rescue this person because of your anger at this display of evil. Is that a good thing? It is. It's good. It's good to respond with anger toward evil. And in fact, the psalmist even says it like this. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. Part of our responsibility as Christians is not just loving what is good, but hating what is wrong. That's what makes God good. He hates evil. He hates Wickedness. Now, the question then is, was Nineveh evil? And again, I'm making the case that yes, absolutely they were. And we get evidence here in the passage. Verse 9. Why do you plot against the Lord? He's speaking to Nineveh here. He's going to make a complete end of you. But why do you plot against 
the Lord, verse 11, says, this thing, says the same thing. From you came one, from Nineveh, from Assyria came one who plotted evil against the Lord. I think what Nahum is talking about is uh, Assyria's um, conquering of Judah and taking them into exile. They plotted against them. They strategized to come against God's people. And what God is saying here is that when you attack my people, you attack me, Nineveh, Assyria. You have plotted against the Lord. And we know that this happened. You can read 2 Kings 17, and you can see what Assyria did to Judah. But as we continue to um, explore like historical accounts of Nineveh and Assyria, th there's much to be learned about the brutality of this nation. Um, if you skip down to verse 14, you'll see again the Lord here is talking about Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. The Assyrians were idolaters. That's what that's telling us. But then we have this final statement in verse 14. I will make your grave for you are vile. You are a vile people, Nineveh. And as we look at historians and scholars, what they have learned is that the Ninevites would uh, come in and conquer nations and they would chain up people like dogs and make them live in kennels. That they would take women and princesses and make them their sex slaves. That they would skin people alive. That's the kind of people we're talking about. The Assyrians, the Ninevites, they were the epitome of cruelty, torture, evil, and wickedness. For a God to look at a nation like that and be unconcerned would not be a God worth worshiping. And that's exactly what Miroslav Volf says here. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end of violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. It's just so ironic, isn't it, that so many people are saying if God is wrathful, he can't be good. And I would say it's exactly the opposite. It's because he's good, he is wrathful and angry at evil and wickedness. Fifth thing, God is great. God is great. Look at verse 3. Back to verse 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Uh, no, excuse me, that's verse 2. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and he is great in power. He, he is mighty. He is a powerful God. This is what Judah needed to know because they were under the yoke of Assyria and what they needed to know is that they worshiped a God who was more powerful than their enemies. And that's what Nahum is making clear here. And so he goes on. He says in verse 3, this is a God um, who... Um, has the clouds as the dust of his feet. Uh, I was walking and praying this morning and just looking up and seeing the clouds and just marveling at that image that the clouds in the sky are below the feet of God. They're, they're majestic to us, but they're like dirt below his shoes. That's how great and mighty this God is. Um, Bashan and uh, Carmel in verse 4, those are very fertile vegetative areas, but before God they wither. God makes the sea dry up, rebukes the sea, makes it dry up, 
in uh, end of verse 5, the mountains quake before him. The, the mountains, the things that you see are the most permanent and fixed um, parts of God's creation, impossible to move, but before God they're quaking and the hills are melting. This is a God of boundless power, a sovereign, almighty, majestic God. No limits to his power and his sovereignty over the entire earth. And that's something that every believer in Christ needs to be reminded of as we look at the events of the world and find ourselves sometimes fearful about what is happening. Remember, this is the God we worship, one who is great, one who is powerful, one who is sovereign and who, and who will get vengeance on all of his enemies. Now, one thing we should be very careful about here is we should never think that because God is powerful and because God is vengeful that we should also seek vengeance personally. Some people have misread texts like this and they've taken up arms. Uh, there have been many examples in the church's history of the church resort, resorting to violence, thinking that since God is going to punish enemy, maybe uh, I should punish my enemies. But remember what the scripture says. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We leave it to God to get his vengeance. But friends, here's why this whole teaching about the wrath and anger of God is so important. Because if we know that God is going to get vengeance, that means we don't have to. We can entrust it to him. You don't have to get revenge. And Tim Keller says it like this. Can our passion for justice be honored in a way that does not nurture our desire for vengeance? Only if I'm sure that there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. If there is no God who gets justice, if there is no God who avenges our enemies, then the only one who can is you. And so you better get to work with your vengeance. But no, the scripture says, no, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will bring about justice. We can trust him to do it and refrain from getting vengeance ourselves. One last thing. God offers peace to whomever will turn to him. God offers peace to whomever will turn to him. And we see that in the very last verse, verse 15. <clears throat> Nahum says this, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. What a wonderful thing. The bringing of good news who publishes peace. Nahum here is referring to the good news that Nineveh will be brought down. And again, that happened in 612 B.C., just a few decades after this. Nineveh was brought down. That's the good news for the readers of this book in that time. But now you might be thinking, well, that's not good news to me because I don't care about Nineveh and Assyria. They're not my enemies. None of you woke up this morning worried about the Ninevites, I'm quite sure. None of you are concerned about Assyria moving across the globe. So what's the good news for you? Well, well here it is. Because you remember what we read a little while ago, how the Lord does not leave the guilty unpunished. He will not clear the guilty. Here's the problem. We're guilty. You're guilty. It's not just the Ninevites who are guilty. It's just not the brutally violent in the world that are guilty. 
all of us are guilty. I'm guilty. We're all guilty before God. We're all under his condemnation. We are all proper recipients of his wrath. All of us without exception. So what's the good news for us? Well, interestingly, Paul in Romans 10 quotes Nahum. Did you know that? Nahum quoted in the New Testament. Paul says this, how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He's quoting Nahum. But in this case, Paul is referring not to the destruction of the Ninevites, but to a savior named Jesus who came and went to a cross and died there an innocent one, the only time ever that God punished the innocent when he punished his son. And when that happened, his wrath was poured out on Jesus so that you who place faith in him could know that you are free from condemnation. <laughs> you are free from your real enemy, not the Ninevites, but the devil himself. You are free from your sin. You are free from your guilt. You are free from your shame. And those are the real enemies that all of us have to deal with, and that was taken care of at the cross. Paul says this, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. That's what Nahum would like us to do. That's what God would like us to do. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus so that we can be free. The one who never sinned once Upon him, your guilt and mine, so that his righteousness is made ours through faith. What a wonderful gospel this is. So good to know that the wrath of God is not ours to bear. Praise God. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, that, um, that although you are a God who is rightfully angry at sin, that you have dealt with that problem for us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for your resurrection from the dead. And Jesus, now we wait for your coming when you will make all things right, fix everything wrong, and wipe away all of our tears and avenge all of your people. And we say, Jesus, come quickly. In your name we pray, amen.